Coming up next, I'll see if I can persuade the fellas to talk about what they did this week. Everybody, it's me, Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host, Brandon. Hey, Ghost Brandon. That's right. That's your title. What'd you do this week? What did I do this week? <laughs> a man, so many things that I've forgotten. So what happens when you're a ghost? Memories go right in and they go right out. Well, we established last week that, or a couple episodes ago, I guess, we established that your ghost synapses still work. Still do still work, yes. That even though the my cog- past memories all carry over, doesn't right. mean that I can make or form any new ones. I oh, can't form any new memories. <laughs> Hasn't really proven to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> what have we been talking about for the last thirty seconds? I don't even know how I got here. You died. No. You were hit by some baggage, as I recall. That's right. Anyway, it's Ghost Brandon. He's here. He's wearing shoes, socks, pants, a shirt of some type, <laughs> <laughs> and we've also got. Beastmaster Funky Town over there, Jacob <laughs> That's Menzel. me, man. How you doing, Jake? Good, how are you? It's been a couple of weeks since we assigned you the appellation of Beastmaster Funky Town. How's it feel? Has your life changed at all? Is your wife treating you with more respect? Not that she was being disrespectful before, but have you noticed a, a certain luster to your hair when you get out of the shower? No, I just feel, I just feel good that you finally recognized the essence of my essence the essence of your yeah i'm always like what is jake's essence for a while we thought it was you were the pastor who's a master of reading but that's not it you're beast master funky town yeah it's yep. a more suitable name there never was ghost brandon your thoughts <clears throat> jake is this is like the platonic form he is beast master funky town jake is the platonic form of beast master funky town yes if we were to this is for all our classical people out mm-hmm. there if jake were a platonic form it would be the platonic form of Beastmaster Funky Town. That's right. <laughs> what, is it, what is it that it says about Gatsby? And we were just talking about Gatsby a few weeks ago. He sprang. It was like he'd been created from his own platonic form or something like that. Oh, yeah. That's Jake. There we go. It's like he's been created from the form of Beastmaster Funky Town. He is Gatsby. He is Gatsby, yes. But Jake didn't self-create. Jake wasn't like, I think I'll be Beastmaster Funky Town. Jake. No. He mm. came out of the old womb. He was Beastmaster Funky Town. That's right. So I'm I'm reading all the historical chronology surrounding Jane Austen's life. There's a really f- nice chronology at the beginning of my book. Cool. Some of these things I've never heard of. Are you prepping for when those guns go off and you're going to get us some contests? Oh, I've prepped. <laughs> Me too. What's that sound? <laughs> it's the contextual Texan firing off his guns with a hail and hearty. Yeehaw! And that's the sound that Brandon makes because he's from Texas and he's going to provide some much needed context. For the work that we are reading, Persuasion by the great Jane Austen, one of my favorite authors of all time. Really? Yeah, really. Brennan? Hey. Take it away. This will, this will be your fourth yeah. Jane Austen context. I feel like Jane and I, we're old friends. And you promised me you were not going to repeat a single iota oh, of... did I promise you that? information? <laughs> well, I did do something that I haven't ever done before. Mm-hmm. Wait. <laughs> 
Yeah, sure. I haven't ever done this before because I've never read this book. So it's come up in conversation many times talking about Jane Austen in the past. So I decided to go ahead and read a memoir of Jane Austen written by her nephew, James Edward Austen Lee. Mm. Or Lay. And it was pretty good. That's the one that we always reference as we always have the quote from it about what kind of a woman she was and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's right. And so I have some pages earmarked that are interesting that we can go to and read. That sounds like a fantastic so idea. That'll be fun to do. Now, folks, just, just to be clear, Brandon actually did not promise me that he wasn't going to repeat anything. Indeed. I did listen to the first context I ever did on Jane Austen. Did you? It's where I was only allowed to use five sentences. Do you remember this? Yeah, I do. I, I feel yeah. like they were really long run-on sentences. They were long run-on sentences, but that was back when we were young and... Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. We're, we're younger now. We were older then. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So how it goes. That, that context was probably relatively short compared to the context we've done. Yes, it was. Since. Yeah, context has grown. Context usually takes at least an episode now, and that's, yeah. that's the way we like it. Context has become a cancer. Yes. <laughs> spreads. <laughs> it spreads. It never stops growing. That's right. <laughs> Soon context will be all there is. Let us pray that context, context never goes into remission. Yeah. So what are we doing? <laughs> I don't context. know. Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Um, I'll use this handy chronology at the beginning of my book. This is fantastic little volume, Every Man's Library. I don't know what we got for our listeners. We didn't get this volume. It was really good, good what we got for our listeners. Every Man's supporters. Library is my favorite. Yeah. yeah, this is just a great... They're not that expensive. And by the way, if you happen to live around a Barnes & Noble... Take advantage of the fact that they are going the way of the dodo. Is our Barnes & Noble doing that? It is. Or 30% off all books right now. Oh, cool. And it's only going to get worse. <laughs> or better for you. <laughs> worse for them. Right. I got a Barnes & Noble gift card for Christmas. I better put that to good use. You yeah, should. I think they're supposed to be out of business by February. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Could, I mean, it could last through the end of February. It probably depends on how fast It's weird. They, they just remodeled our Barnes & Noble. I know. It's a like weird decision. literally a couple of weeks ago. It's a strange decision. Now we will have no bookstores except for Caveat Tour and Howard's Books. And half-price books. Yes. We do have half-price books. It's like kind of a diet half-priced books, though. Yeah, it's like yeah. fake half-price books. You have to actually have to drive up to Indy. <sighs> but just to be clear, any kind of half-price books is better than no half-price books. That's I'm, true. I'm glad we have it. I've been there billions of times since the it opened. The king of half-price books, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the bookening before, is in Dallas, Fort Worth, or Dallas, Texas, not Dallas, Fort Worth. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's the original half price books, and it's like it's huge. It's like an, a Walmart size half price. Book. That sounds awesome. Huh. It is awesome. It sounds daunting, actually. It is daunting, but it's awesome. But I bet you could go in there and maybe find what you're looking for. When which I first is, which is moved, cool for if I it's in bookstore. the right place, oh, yeah, sure, if but... it is in the right place, you have to spend all day looking. So when I first moved to Bloomington, see, but that's the thing. You're going to complain about half-price books? No, Jake doesn't like I'm not going to complain about half-price books. It is fun to go and just browse bookstores. But if you're going there because you're looking for something, and it will take you a day or half a day to find it. My contention is for that you generally off. shouldn't go to half-price books if you're looking, looking for, something. for something. You should go because you want to have fun browsing exactly. and see what you can stumble upon. But I'm wondering, I've never been to a Walmart-sized one. Maybe you could go to a Walmart-sized one and you could look for something? You could, and you might find it, but it's still better for what Jake is saying. Half-price books, like old bookstores, it's just you, you go there hoping to be surprised at what you find. Yes. That's, that's half of the fun of a, a good bookstore. Yeah. Like there was a good one down in Louisville. I can't remember what <clears throat> it was that Jeremy and I found. Jeremy, my brother. Mm -hmm. But it was fun to just browse, and I found a couple of really cool things. And when I first moved to Bloomington, my uh, the closest friend I had at the time during my first year here, we would often drive up to 
Indians spend a whole day just browsing half-price books. Fun fact, you know what my very first half-price books purchase was? What? It was also my very first Jane Austen book. Pride and Prejudice? It was Pride and Prejudice. Mansfield Park. And I went looking for it. And he found it. Contrary to my own advice. Contrary to your prejudiced opinion of half-price books. (laughs) Indeed. And the pride that you evinced in thinking of... Half, uh, what's I'm gonna abandon this whole <laughs> there is a book you I've get been, what I'm going for <laughs> I go to half price books all the time looking for Robert Lowell's poetry and I have not yet I've yet to find there for a long I didn't have a volume of Herbert and for the longest time I would stop in regularly hoping to find a really nice volume of Herbert never would and you know what I did and I finally did I finally said you know what idiot you come in here like once a week hoping for like months hoping to find a nice volume of Herbert for like $12, you can go buy the Everyman's Library, Herbert's Complete Works. So that's what you did. So that's what I did, Amazon. It's an amazing thing when you want actually want a thing. Yeah, it's actually, anytime I'm at Half Price Books or I contemplate going there, it disappoints me to think about the existence of Amazon. It takes like, you're Indiana Jones and you're going to go on a treasure hunt and then you're just you're like, oh, wait a second, the Ark of the Covenant's actually in the museum now. I can just go Isn't see it. it. Like, yep. I, don't, I don't, it takes kind of takes the joy out of it that you can just, Everything's just a click away. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't trade my life with some lame that lived before Amazon and had to do the work. I mean, I, I realize I should count, count your blessings, but I'm just saying if you, you, know if, you if, if you if you grow up a king and you have you get to eat everything, then your savor for food goes down. Unlike people that don't have everything, they, they, they you know, yeah. <laughs> so we should live like paupers so that we can. Nope, we shouldn't. But every once in a while, it's nice to. They have that thought. Or death that, to Amazon. I'm never going to use it again. Amazon. Down with Only Amazon. local. Local bookstores. Think local. Overpriced books. Don't ever really have what you want, except Howard's Books has an amazing collection of the Penguin Classics. That sounds great. It's weird. I like Penguin Classics. Yeah. Really. No, that's what I'm saying is, yeah. They have like two shelves just devoted to the Penguin Classics. So shout out to them. So you look for Robert... Shout out to Howard's Books. So you... Look for Robert Lull every time you go on. Yeah, I want his collected. I want his collected two two things. I want to find. I want to find his collected letters and his collected poems. Right. So, and that's fun to have like a thing that you always. Even though Amazon can give you anything you want, it's fun to just have that. Th- I always look for Stephen Milhauser books. Yeah. In in any kind of used bookstore, and I think I've built my Stephen Milhauser collection mostly through the used route. I actually had a couple copies of Martin Dressler that we used for yeah. when we read that novel. Yeah, I think. I think you gave me yeah copy. i think I, I know i gave somebody a copy and it's because of the the great joy of half price books i also look for i generally check for cormac mccarthy just because he's right in the same section as millhauser and so yeah. i turn around and you know what's really great what's about half price books is when you have an author like millhauser or somebody like that or just books that you know that are common enough that but you want to recommend them or give them away or whatever mm-hmm. like Drunken White. Yeah. Even classic children's books like Charlotte's Web or Winnie <clears throat> the Poop. <laughs> Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Mm-hmm. He, that's, those are like, you can have a couple of things like that, that every time you go into half price books, you look for a cool copy of Pride and Prejudice or something like that. You look for, or anything by Austin. You look for, you know, Millhouse or whatever. And you can just grab what they have if they're decent for $2 or mm-hmm. whatever, have them on hand to just give away to people. A fun fact, we talked about The Great Gatsby last week, the movie, that silly movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Guess yeah. where I got my copy of the Blu-ray for a dollar? Half Walmart. Barnes and Noble. No, Half Price Books, <laughs> of course. That's. Did you go there looking for it? No, we, I knew we were going to do the movie, and <laughs> I. The, the dumb part of the story is I had actually already rented it on 
Amazon or something like that the day before. So I found it too late, but I was like, oh, cool. I've got, I can get the Blu-ray. I'll have, I can watch the special features. It can inform the special show. Fe- turns out Baz Luhrmann really liked the novel. I did not really learn very much, but. I got mine from the library. They had a copy. There you go. And I'm at the library pretty much all the time like a hobo. <laughs> and I, I think true to form the way that this is going, I just paid $4 on iTunes for the rental and didn't blink because it was nice and easy. Yep. And the show's got lots of colors, so you really can't blink while you're watching it. No. So, uh, wasn't you, you it originally, shut your eyes. wasn't it shot in 3D or 4 3D? That would make sense. Yes, it is. It was. It was. I, I had that thought. As we discussed last week. Oh, right. yeah. Yes. Because we we're not, we're not recording that, that conversation. <laughs> Guys, old uh, bookstores are fun. Mm-hmm. Old used bookstores. In fact... Yes. If I ever start using my personal Instagram again, I will just only devote it to used bookstores that I oh, find. that'd be fun. Another book-related crud. <laughs> you know what I like finding? And I'm almost tempted to buy them when I find them. Any book that has an inscription, like a, a really personal inscription, it makes me so sad when I find any book and on the inside cover, it's like, Dear Porus, I just, I thought of you when thinking of this book. I think it will really help you raise your children well, love mom, or something like that. And, and then there you, it is in a used bookstore. You realize old Horace had, didn't have any respect yeah, for his mom. you can sometimes find some pretty intimate inscriptions that are sad. No, yeah, it, it always makes me sad that some person poured out their heart onto this little inscription, and then the person callously... You don't know that that's true, though. What if Horace died? We can only hope that Horace died. <laughs> Horace, I hope you're dead. Yeah, Horace. <laughs> Just like Jane Austen. Just like Jane Austen. Hey, nice segue, Brandon. You <laughs> know what? She's dead. This, 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 this episode is going to have a long preamble because I enjoyed that discussion and I think our listeners would enjoy it too. So it's not hitting the cutting room floor. There we go. Brandon? You know what I'll have to hit the cutting room fl- floor? Your context. Some of the context. <laughs> <laughs> All right, donor shout outs. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right, so according to this chronology of Jane Austen in the front of Everyman's Library, Mm -hmm. which is the best book and got us into that discussion of used bookstores in the first place, and because I'm not going to use Wikipedia at all. Good. I don't even, I didn't crack Wikipedia. Yeah. Wikipedia can, it's actually pretty useful. (laughs) It's pretty useful. I have nothing against Wikipedia. (laughs) It's just just lazy. Um, So she was born in the 1700s. This doesn't actually tell you when she was born, which is weird. Look at this. It says author's life, and then it has a bunch of dates here. Mm-hmm. Oh, she was born in 1775. It does tell you that Wordsworth was born in 1770, and Sir Walter Scott was born in 1771. Hmm. Sir Walter Scott was one of her contemporaries and actually would be a big admirer of hers later on. This guy, Austin, her nephew, Austin Lay, would collect one of the, in one of the last chapters of his memoir, some of the things that were said about her. She liked Walter Scott. Mm-hmm. She was intimidated by the fact that Walter Scott, well, not intimidated. She was playfully aware of the fact that he wrote Waverly and mm-hmm. said, must he be a great poet and also a great prose writer too. And so all these people, they were all talking about one another. By the way, spoiler alert, he was neither one, but that's my <laughs> little opinion. It's a flame war with Sir Walter Scott. Yeah, it makes me sad that a lady of Jane Austen's caliber would have so little taste. I want to find this quote. She... Did not have the embarrassment of riches that we... Yeah, she hadn't watched a bunch of awesome medieval movies and stuff. Walter Scott, you're right, Jake. Walter Scott is basically, what's the word, irrelevant? That's not the word I want. Something, a synonym for that, though. He is no longer useful. What's a word for that? Like, he is out... Outdated, outmoded. He is... Well, except guess what you guys shared in common. What's that? A great love of Jane Austen. So he wrote... (laughs) Read again for the third... Working hard to keep us on the rails here. <laughs> Read again for the third time at least. 
at least. Wow. Absolutely. Miss Austin's finely written That's novel it. of Pride and Prejudice. Obviously, that was the word, yeah. yes. <laughs> and I wish that I could go back in time and ride a Triceratops and ask her to marry me. Is that what he said? No. Wow, that is really similar. <laughs> <laughs> that young lady had a talent for describing the involvements and feelings and characters of Orton. A little bit too, too many ands there. Mm-hmm. Mr. Walter Scott, somebody needed an editor. Um <laughs> You know, I have to admit. Which is, to me, the most wonderful I ever met. He said this about her. The most wonderful he ever met with. Her descriptions of the involvements and feelings and characters of ordinary life. (laughs) Then he says, the big bow-wow strain I can do myself like any now going. But the exquisite touch which renders ordinary commonplace things and characters interesting from the truth of the description and the sentiment is denied to me. What a pity such a gifted creature died so early. Stirring words from Sir Walter. He knew his place. Mm Mm-hmm. He knew what she had tapped into, and appropriately, given that letter there, she really had very little fame during her life. And in fact, one of the interesting parts of this book, in the introduction, some professor from Oxford wrote the introduction to this. His name was David Gilson, if he's still alive. He was Mm -hmm. writing in Oxford in 1994. Some of her relatives didn't even realize her worth and value until, well, about 1860 when this memoir was written. Hmm. They got rid of a lot of her letters. They thought that maybe her novels would be family interest and they wouldn't be an interest for the nation, Mm -hmm. is what they would say. Hmm. And so one of her nieces said, yeah, we had no clue that she was... In fact, Austin Lay, the guy who wrote this memoir, didn't even realize that she was the lady who had written Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, two books that he loved, until maybe like 1808 when he was up older and... They told him, yeah, your aunt wrote those because she wrote under pseudonyms. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so she didn't want the fame to come to her. She took the money. She would make like 150 pounds off of these things. And she thought that was a decent living, but she was not infamous or famous for her literary achievements, which is interesting to realize. I didn't realize the extent or the lack of extent of her fame until I read this. That was yeah, one I of knew the she labored in takeaways. a certain amount of obscurity, but yeah. Yeah, quite a bit of obscurity. In fact, she... Which one was it that sat in that guy's, was it Mansfield Park? That I think they had it to was, come and purchase. It, yeah. yeah, I remember talking about that last year. Yeah, she had to they actually had to back. come and purchase the rights back from this guy. When you read about other accounts, it sounded like she just sent it to this guy and he kind of forgot about it. According to Austin Lay, he, he got it. He thought it was really not even worth his 10 pounds to publish. So he put it in his desk drawer and forgot completely about it. Hmm. And then her brother Henry came back years later after she had had some success with Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. And he said, you know, I want to buy the rights back to Mansfield Park. And then the guy says, yeah, whatever. And then as as soon as Henry buys it back, he says, by the way, the author of this was the author of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. So nice. Rubbed it in his face. Yeah. So Sir Walter Scott and Wordsworth, it's interesting that they were both, both born around the same time. Coleridge was born in 1772. I know we mentioned Shelley was born not that much later than her. She would have been... 18 when Shelley was born. She was alive during the time of these authors that would spearhead this great romantic literary movement. Walter Scott was on the fringes. He was kind of made fun of by some of the romantics because he was a popular writer. They didn't go in for the big bow-wow strain. No, they didn't go in for the big bow-wow strain. And there are some things in here that acknowledge that Austin knew that he wasn't part of this new literary strain, Mm -hmm. right? But this was the context that she was born into in literature was the romantic movement. It was starting. Wordsworth was starting. And uh, surrounding Wordsworth and the literature movement that he would create, you would have the romantics, you would have Keats and Shelley and the other Shelley, Lady Shelley. Mm -hmm. And you can go back and listen to that episode on the romantic movement. But just to hear, just to get a sense of the drastic difference between Austin, this not timid, but this quiet lady 
Country Lady and Charlotte Bronte, for example. Yes, who we'll be reading later this year. Yeah. And if the episode Brandon was referring to, if anyone wants to listen to it on romanticism, it's Frankenstein. So anyway, so she was born in 1775, and this is just a qu- brief overview of her life because we've talked about it quite a bit already. In other episodes, she, her father was a rector, which is kind of like a pastor. What's the difference between a pastor, as I understand it, and a rector? Well, a pastor, as we understand it, would be like Pastor Jake Mensel, pastor of a church who preaches and oversees a flock and a congregation. There would have been, my understanding is there would have probably been less of the flock tending with a rector. He would have been responsible for preaching on Sundays, and he would have often been under the auspices of some peerage or patronage of a baron or a vicar. Like Collins and Pride and Prejudice. Exactly, like Collins and Pride and Prejudice. And so he would have had certain responsibilities that would have gone with that. But And there were education that was required. Her father, the Austins, came from Kent and some clothiers, apparently, who had some money and had some land and some respect in that area. But he didn't quite, he didn't get any of the titles necessarily. So he had to go to Oxford. His parents died when he was young and he was taken care of by an uncle that helped him with his fortune. And so then he went and became a rector kind of that colored and determined the shape of Austin's life, Jane Austen's life. Her father was a rector and he was rectors of small country parishes usually. And so she was born at Steventon, and then they would move there. They would eventually go to Bath, which is important for the purpose of persuasion because so the Elliots end up in Bath after they have to lease Kiffley Hall or whatever. Whatever there, yeah. Yeah, is the name of that place. Eventually her father would die, and it would leave her and her mother and her sister Cassandra, who she was very close to and would write a majority of her letters to, having to go and live under her brother Henry's auspices towards the end of her life in Chawton which apparently you can still go and see Chawton to this day. There you go. Fairly happy little cottage. Uh, she was writing stories when she was young. We have some of her juvenilia, which we'll, we will never read on the bookening according to Nathan, right? That is what I have said. People have been trying to convince me otherwise. Yeah. So just keep, if you want us to read Jane Austen's juvenilia, then keep sending in your letters, your emails, your pleadings, cash donations will be accepted. And maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe I won't. All other forms of donations will also be accepted. All other forms of donation. Blood. Yes. Plasma. Blood. But, I mean, if you really want to get a sense of what Jane Austen's life was like and what her home life was like, just read her novels. Because almost every character she writes about, whether it's Emma or it's the Bennets, probably the Bennets even. Emma's a little higher class than. Emma is. That's right. The Bennets are probably the closest you have to what the Austin household would have actually been like, except her parents were better than their, her parents. Than the parents. Bennetts, yeah. right. And so I, I think that's probably fair to say the Bennetts are the closest representation we have of the Austins' station in life. The Austins may have been just a little bit lower even than that because her father was a rector. And I forget what Mr. Bennett was, a landed gentry of some sort. Yeah, I don't even know if I don't you even know. know if you ever find out. So they would have been just a little bit lower than that, but enough money and enough relations to have allowed them to have the happy country, higher class life that the Bennets have. They would have gone to balls. In fact, in many of her letters, she talks about the balls that she had just visited. Most of her brothers would go off, become sailors. The last living brother that she had became an admiral, I believe, or if not an admiral, at least very close to having admirality and respect from all of his uh, Navy peers. 
all throughout her letters, she writes about the sailors and the and the sailors that she meets at Bath and her brothers and the concerns that she has for her brothers out at sea. And so all these things are actually were an intimate part of her life. And so why is that important? Well, because sailors and the life of the sailor is very at the heart of persuasion. Her, her brother, so by the way, did become an admiral. I just remembered because in her famous, infamous to our booking listeners' minds, the essay by Virginia Woolf, she's sneering at the fact that Jane Austen's brother, the admiral, lived to be 96 or something like that, whereas yeah. poor Jane died, which was somehow the patriarchy's fault. Who knows how? Anyway, <laughs> pray continue. Yeah, because... Yeah, it's weird. But both and another of her brothers would go in into the Navy as well and have a fairly respectable career. In fact, when he died, according to Austin Lay, so the men under him were sad mm-hmm. because he was such a respectable leader. All this to say from her brothers, from her sisters, from the letters we see, she had a happy life for the most part. And so we uh, can imagine that she had happy parents, good parents. And so... We don't have to go and interpret what's not there, Mm -hmm. which is what a lot of people like to do and try to think that she was miserable when all the evidence points in the opposite direction. In fact, in many of the letters towards the end of her life, when she died fairly young, around 40, like pretty much like Flannery O'Connor. 42. I think they were both 42, if I'm remembering correctly. I think that's right. Still, her letters are fairly cheerful with a bright aspect on life, even though she's dying. Fairly painful death. So yeah, that's Jane Austen's life. All right. So just her writing career then as... This is going on. She has this quiet country life. She has her brothers, Henry, the lawyer, has children, and they come and they visit Aunt Jane. And she has this busy life at home where she's like at Bath. She learned how to play the piano. So she has this life that the Bennets would have had. Right. I, I keep coming back to the Bennets, but that's if you really kind of want to understand what her home life would have been like without the nuisance of a bad mother and father. Pride and Prejudice is a good parallel to go with there. The difference is all during this time, Partly inspired by the theater that they would have performed as a family, which is kind of interesting considering Mansfield Park. Mm -hmm. But they had theatrical performances when they were young. Their parents were always reading to them. They were encouraging them to read. So all her education would have been fairly, she would have read the classics, fairly, fairly straightforward. She would have read the classics of history, but she wouldn't have, she would have learned French and she would have learned some Italian. Austin Lay says she was pretty proficient in French. She learned the piano. She loved music. She would always be singing popular songs to herself, even if it annoyed her mother and sister, again, according to Austin Lay. Mm -hmm. She loved to tell stories. In fact, one of the things her nieces and nephews remembered most fondly of her was her telling fairy tales that would often last for two or three days. And they were just fabulous. And one of her nieces regretted that her aunt had never written any of these down. And so she loved to tell stories and she loved to observe everyone around her. In fact, there are a lot of parallels between Austin and Flannery O'Connor, really. Mm-hmm. The big difference being that Austin was the superior genius. <laughs> but <laughs> this led her in pretty early on, like around 16, 17, 18, to start writing some of these down. Some of, the, uh, some of these stories would be parodic or satirical, but you have the early germs of what would later become Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. The first draft of Pride and Prejudice was called the Bennetts, I don't know. First something. Impressions. Oh, First Impressions. Ah, oh, that's right. I yeah. knew that. And then um, I think that the first uh, draft of Sense and Sensibility was like Marianne or something. Eleanor and Marianne. Yeah, Eleanor yeah. and Marianne, that's right. I knew one of them just had the people name. Yeah, and so these would change, and so this would be around the 1790s. She would be writing these, and she would be reading them to her family, and they would all be, encourage her to start turning them into novels. She had uh, novelists that she admired. She read a lot of Richardson 
she read some other novelists that I hadn't heard of that are we've forgotten today. <laughs> she was a great admirer of a poet called Crab. Crab. C R A B B E. And he was known for writing poems about peasant life. And they were very detailed. In fact, there's one of her letters that said, where she says that if she could choose to marry anyone, she would happily marry Mr. Crab. Hmm. There you go. But it never happened. Mr. Crab never got her letter, I guess. That's too bad. So where was I? Uh, Mr. Crab never got her letter. Mr. Crab never got her letter. And so we missed out on the Austin Crab <laughs> reunion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jane Crab. Would we still be reading her books if it was by Jane Crab? Nope. <laughs> Jake, Jake, Jake says yes. What's in a name? Jake's face says, what's in a name? What's in a name? But let's rose face it, by any other. A rose by, yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, I, think a rose, I think it helps that a rose is called a rose. Yeah? Yeah. So. <laughs> spirit we'll, Ains and Days Gone By. We'll come back to that. Um, so, Spirit Ains and Days Gone By, Need a Pulling Thread, Hark. I don't get those references. The Herald Can you Angels. explain them? What? One of them was from Mary Poppins or something. The other one's from uh, The Has been a complaint? The other one's from what? Beowulf. Beowulf. Oh, Mary Poppins and Beowulf. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> it's actually not Mary Poppins. <laughs> it's uh, the Sound of Music. The Sound of Music. Yeah. We got both of our references wrong. So she's writing these stories. She's telling these stories, and they're all coming from her observations of her neighbors, of her friends, of her family. And while Austin Lay is pretty committed to, and I think he's right, the fact that she wasn't writing people that she knew into her books. Mm -hmm. She was taking her keen observations of people. In her letters, I read some of her letters too, and he has a lot of her letters in her book, in, in this book as well. One of the things you realize about her letters is that she's, the observation that goes into her novels is, was just part of her life. Right. right. She could observe these things about people. These little bitty these little details that just define and tell you who a person is. These were, she was always aware of these things. And this would come to be the basis of the novels that Walter Scott would give so high praise to. Um, she would be able to take the ordinary, her life of just the living room or the sewing room of a house with a few families coming into that room together and she could create a Shakespearean drama for you out of it or a Shakespearean comedy for you. And... The way she does it is astounding. There's a portion in here, if I can find it, where he talks about... So later in her life, when they were finally at Chawton, I found this charming, if I can find it. The nieces and nephews, little children, would be coming in and out of the house, and there would be all these distractions, neighbors coming in and out of the house, and they had the drawing room, and they had a little walnut desk where she would always write at, and none of these children ever realized when they were coming into the house that they were basically interrupting the work of a genius. Mm-hmm. Because she would never tell them, you little brats, get out of here. You're interrupting the work of a genius, right? <laughs> she would always be very humble about it. And they would come in and it was Aunt Jane and they loved her. And so, yeah, so here we go. I just turned right to it. In that well-occupied female party, there must have been many precious hours of silence during which the pen was busy at the little mahogany, not walnut, mahogany writing desk. While Fanny Price or Emma Wodehouse or Anne Elliot was growing into beauty and interest. I have no doubt that I... And my sisters and cousins and our visits to Chot frequently disturbed this mystic process without having any idea of the mischief that we were doing. Mm. <laughs> but this is, to really understand Jane Austen and the books she created, this is what it came out of. This was, it was her art imitating life. And later when one of her nieces would write her letters about a novel she was writing, Jane Austen would say her famous quote about, you know, there's nothing better than three or four families in, an, in a house 
Right. That can be the setting of a great book. Mm-hmm. And here's that quote about Walter Scott. Walter Scott has no business to write novels, especially good ones. You guys wouldn't agree there, would you? Do you want to read some of the things that Austin Lay had to say about her? Sure do. Some of the nice things? I'm all ears. He'll add page turning sound effects if... Uh... I'll tell you what, Brandon, while you organize your thoughts, yeah. why don't... Why don't we do some donor shout-outs? So this is not the end of the episode, folks. This is the rare mid-episode donor shout-outs. We're just going to shout these donors out real quick. All right, Jake, you ready to shout-out these donors? You betcha. A very special, and it should be special, shout-out to Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. The immortal Chelsea E. The immortal Chelsea E. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds, by the way, some of our favorite people. Yeah, Absolutely. And I'm sorry, what were you saying about the immortal Chelsea E? She has a message to deliver to the to the young men of her church. What's that? Read Jane Austen. That's right. Yeah. Young men of immortal Chelsea <clears throat> E's church, read Jane she Austen. Wrote us, she wrote us an email. Uh, actually, she wrote us an email, and then she also wrote us each separate individual handwritten letters pleading with us to say on this episode of this show during the, donor shoutouts. When she knew that all the young men of her church would be listening. Yes. She thinks that they're all idiots unless they love Jane Austen. She's not going to marry any of them. Which would be a terrible tragedy for them. Yeah. If I do say so myself. So, guys. Read some Jane Austen. Obey the word of of the immortal Chelsea E. Marry her. All Read of you. Jane Austen and then, yeah, marry Jane Austen. Yep. I think that's what you were saying, right? <laughs> Read Jane, yes. <laughs> that's what I meant. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew and Esther Andrew the Lovers. And, and little babies. And little babies. Timothy. Timothy. And X. And X. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. John and Jill John and Little Baby and Max. Jill and Little Baby Max. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. Hey, Jake, what do you need? Or what do you David's need? Mighty Men Transport. Transport. David's Mighty Men. My beloved Mother Beth. My beloved Mother Beth. Jeremy, the dark-hooded Lord of Death. The, <laughs> the dark-hooded Lord of Death. The incandescent The incandescent Meredith. Meredith. The effervescent Joanna. The effervescent Joanna. Maya! Roundhouse Ryan and Judo Judith. Roundhouse Ryan and Judo Judith. Danny the Dude. Who? Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. <laughs> DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Jay, Katie. Jay and Katie who are cold Phoebe. and love cheese. Along Junia with and... Phoebe, Junia and... Preston, Kyle... Trevor. Trevor, no. Preston, Trenton. You guys are ruining it for Trey. me. I would have had it. Trey. Trey, that's right. Who are cold and love cheese. Who are cold and love cheese. Benny T. Trey. And Dana T. Trey, Trey saved our live show. Yes, he did. And Judy and Phoebe are awesome as well. Yep. Eric and Catherine, who are cold and love cheese. Phoebe has sent me a picture. Phoebe, you haven't sent me a picture or saved a show. You've got to do something special. Yeah, it up, Phoebe. Nah, Phoebe's awesome. Eric and Catherine, who are cold and love cheese. Eric and Catherine, who are cold and love... Che- what? Um, they can be cold and love cheese every once in a while. Eric and Catherine? It's winter, and I assume that they love cheese, so uh, okay. right Eric now... Eric and Catherine, who are cold and love cheese. Professor X. I don't and- know, it feels... Kind of false to Jay and Katie to steal their title and give it confer it on someone yeah, else. Yeah, like you're that. right. Eric and Catherine, who are warm and hate cheese. <laughs> they love string cheese. Eric and Catherine, who are warm and love wine. 
There you go. To go with the cheese. And if, they, if they got together with Jay and Katie, then they, they would all be pairing. pleasant and they'd have wine and cheese. Yep. Hmm. It'd be a good mix. You should do that. They should. I don't I don't I don't think that they shouldn't. Uh Professor X and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. Whose opinions on cheese are unknown. Whose opinions on cheese are in fact unknown. Hey, thanks, donors. If you want to be a donor, go to patreon.com forward slash the booketing. <laughs> Jake just almost died, as he often does. <laughs> All right. He likes to tip his chair. I, I caught myself with my head. You always do. <laughs> One day you might not, and that'll be sad. Brandon. Yeah. Where were we? Oh, we were just... So I keep touting this book, Austin Lay's Memoir mm-hmm. of Jane Austen. I think that everybody should go and read it. It's fun. Keep in mind that... This is a nephew who admits that he didn't know her all that well. He knew her during the last years of her life. And he doesn't talk about any of the love affairs she may have had, mm-hmm. which now are, is all anyone ever talks about. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there was a young man when she was in Bath, or maybe it was just before Bath, that beca- later became a fairly important Irish politician, mm-hmm. or maybe, a, I forget, British politician, some sort of famous politician, that she was in a bit of a fling with. We don't know a whole lot about it because all the letters were burned. But we Sister do know Cassie that, burned yeah. the letters. But we do know there was something that happened. Mm-hmm. And there were probably other things. I mean, for her to be able to write Elizabeth Bennett so well, you imagine that she had some sort of flirtations and infatuations during her life. So She said she was the most flirtatious husband-hunting butterfly that ever lived, is how she described herself as a young woman. Yeah. Actually, that's... Austin Lay takes that up, and he disagrees with it. Ah, there you go. So, at the end, apparently that's was by a Miss Mitford who later in her life said that Jane Austen was the prettiest, silliest, most affected husband-hunting butterfly she could remember. Uh, there you go. And Austen Lay says, that can't be true because when she would have known Austen, she was only 10 years old. Oh. She could have been a 10-year-old husband-hunting uh, butterfly. Gotta, gotta get your nab them young. Yeah. So all that to say, we don't know a whole lot about her personality. No, she's a little bit like Shakespeare. We just don't, yeah. we just don't have a lot. But That's we do fine. know what this nephew said of her. Mm-hmm. And we do know what she was like later in life as she approached death, as she was, as she was in, the middle, in the midst of her writing career. And that's when Austin Lay would have known her. So who she was before that, we don't know a whole lot except stories that he was handed down to him. All right. And so the most accurate picture he gives us is of who she was towards the end of her life mm-hmm. before she died. And so, but we're going to read some of this because it's fun. Yeah, let's do it. And we're going to start with... His chapter on her death, because he has a paragraph on persuasion, which is very fitting for the fact that we're reading persuasion. And so persuasion, I guess just quickly, since we're doing it context on it, was she wrote it towards the end of her life. And in fact, it is one of the two books she actually did not publish herself. They were published posthumously by her brother, Henry. And so it's one of the only two novels that was published that she probably did not actually title. Yes. Um, Henry probably gave it that title. And so we don't know what she would have named it. It's very likely she would have called Northanger Abbey Northanger Abbey because she called all her a lot of her books after, well, only one other book after the name of the house, right? Mansfield Park. Yeah. It's not like Pride and Prejudice is called Pemberley. Nope. Oh, well, there goes that theory. Okay. <laughs> Who knows what she would have called it? She died before she could title it. That's what you get for dying before you title your works. Yeah, you got to title those works before you, you die. You don't just call it Gatsby and then write up above it, The Great, when mm-hmm. you realize that that sounds better. Yep. <laughs> or whatever was going on. He was um, drying out from his alcoholic bender. But. Yeah. If only letters that I wrote down became snowflakes. Who's to say they don't? Yeah, who's to say they don't? All right. It is certain, however, that the mind did not share in this decay of the bodily strength. 
This is Austin Lay speaking now. About his aunt's demise. Persuasion was not finished before the middle of August in that year, and the manner in which it was then completed affords proof that neither the critical nor the creative powers of the author were at all impaired. The book had been brought to an end in July, and the re-engagement of the hero and heroine affected in a totally different manner in a scene laid at Admiral Croft's lodgings. So in other words, it was a different ending at first. But her performance did not satisfy her. She thought it tame and flat and was desirous of producing something better. This weighed upon her mind, the more so probably on account of the weak state of her health, so that one night she retired to rest in very low spirits. But such depression was in little accordance with her nature and was soon shaken off. The next morning she awoke to more cheerful views and brighter inspirations. The sense of power revived and imagination resumed its course. She canceled the condemned chapter and wrote two others entirely different in its stead. Boom. The result is what we possess, the visit of the Musgrove party to Bath, the crowded and animated scenes, the White Hart Hotel, and the charming conversation between Captain Harville and Anne Elliot overheard by Captain Wentworth, by which the two faithful lovers were at last led to understand each other's feelings. The 10th and 11th chapters of Persuasion, then, rather than the actual winding up of the story, contain the latest of her printed compositions, her last contribution to the entertainment to the public. There you go. Yeah. So I thought that was fun. That is fun. It's kind of direct commentary on the book we just read. So this gets at the close relation she had to her nieces and nephews and also the close relation she, she had to her characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the only, I imagine Shakespeare had this relation to his characters, but the only other author I know for sure did is Dickens, who, have you seen that new Christmas movie of his? No. About him? I have some dignity. Apparently he talks to his characters in that mm-hmm. movie, which isn't so too far from life because Dickens actually imagined his characters were real and would sometimes talk to them. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, she certainly took a kind of parental interest in the beings whom she had created and did not dismiss them from her thoughts when she had finished her last chapter. We have seen in one of her letters her personal affection for Darcy and Elizabeth. In fact, in one of her letters, she said if people hated Elizabeth, she didn't know what she would do with herself. She didn't know if she could live. <laughs> Because she had that much fondness for Elizabeth. Hmm. Um, And, of course, a lot of people assume that Elizabeth is loosely based on her. Right. And when sending a copy of Emma to a friend whose daughter had been lately born, she wrote thus, I trust you'll be as glad to see my Emma as I shall be to see your Jemima. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Okay. So she would, if asked, tell us many little particulars. So this is a niece talking now. About the subsequent career of some of her people. So here. If you ever wondered what happened to some of her characters, this is from Jane Austen herself, This is, which is kind of fun. In this traditionary way, we learned that Miss Still never succeeded in catching the doctor. Who's Miss Still? I don't know. That must be Sense and Sensibility. I don't yeah. remember that. That Kitty Bennett was satisfactorily married to a clergyman near Pemberley. Yeah, Kitty. While Mary obtained nothing higher than one of her Uncle Philip's clerks. Well, I could have told you that. And was content to be considered a star in the society of Meryton. That the considerable sum given by Mrs. Norris to William Price was one pound. I don't remember that, do you? I don't even remember who Price is. And that the letters placed by Frank Churchill before Jane Fairfax, which she swept away unread, contained the word pardon. Ah, that's nice. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. If you guys wanted some inside information. But of the good people in Northanger Abbey and Persuasion, we know nothing more than what is written because she died. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Austin. So so sorry. (laughs) This part here I marked, which because it's interesting, a lot of her critics early on were really concerned by one aspect of her novels, which is a complaint Jake brought to Dickens in which I've never really heard anyone bring to Jane Austen, which, so it was interesting, which is that she was too obsessed with details. Hmm. Um, And so this critic, he put a whole long section. This guy loved to put in weird letters and random things just to kind of think, fill out the book. Mm -hmm. But this one was interesting because 
Um, this critic ends by saying, They have acted like those who strip off the leaves of a fruit tree, as being of themselves good for nothing, with the view of securing more nourishment to the fruit, which in fact cannot attain its full maturity and flavor without them. In other words, people wanted her to like take out her comic characters. They wanted her to strip some of her story down and just leave the bare bones, I guess. Mm-hmm. Of I don't know why. Elizabeth and Darcy. I don't think you, we think today of a Jane Austen novel as being rambling. No. But that was one of the critiques brought against her at first. She's one of the most concise of the great novelists that you could name. And people just thought that she was rambling and they especially hated. So the guy that this person was responding to was especially offended by her fools. And this guy comes and says, well, if you're offended by the foolish characters, because he said said she spends too much time on them, like Mm -hmm. Mr. Collins. And he said, well, if you're offended by that, then you will be offended by Shakespeare because Shakespeare does the exact same thing. Yeah, It's amazing. In a lot of these early letters and then later on in her life, she would often be likened to Shakespeare in her depth of understanding of character. And I think that's fair. Yeah, rightfully so. Mrs. Norris gave a considerable sum to Mr. Price. Yeah, to William Price. Well, that would be Fanny's dad. Oh, or would it be the, or would it be her brother? It was the brother, William. William was her brother. Was Fanny? She only gave one pound. So this is so it was completely sarcastic. Knew a nasty. What was the other thing? She oh, she knew what was written on the letter from Frank Churchill, which is like that'd be like if you asked Sophia Coppola what what Bill Murray said at the end of Lost in Translation into Scarlett Johansson's ear, and she just told you. But she wouldn't be a genius enough for it to not ruin it no it doesn't ruin it i don't think no for it to be pardoned yeah no it makes it better that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of cool yeah makes you want to cry so like i said she wasn't really known in her life as a great writer or as even a famous writer so a few years ago a gentleman's visiting winchester cathedral desired to be shown miss austin's grave and this just a quick aside one of the interesting things about this memoir by austin lay was the fact that he used so it was sold in two um installments the first installment made 80 pounds, the next one made 80 pounds. And he used some of that money to actually raise a bronze memorial to Austin in Winchester Cathedral, where she was buried. Because some lord, like Lord Macaulay or something, said, why is, doesn't this lady have... Like a good grave marker. Yeah. And even till 1860, she was still not known as this great figure of English literature yet. She was starting to gain that to some extent. But like I said, even to that point, her family really didn't know what sort of jewel they had in her. So that's just the sort of quiet life she had and the sort of quiet acceptance into the literary world she had. But anyways, this guy goes to Winchester Cathedral after her death because he wants to be shown Austin's grave. So obviously she's dead. Right. (laughs) And the verger, as he pointed it out, asked, so like the the caretaker Mm -hmm. of the grounds, pray, sir, can you tell me whether there was anything particular about that lady? So many people want to know where she was buried. So even the people who lived in her area didn't realize who she was or why people cared about her. That's fascinating. Yeah. So during her life, the ignorance of the verger was shared by most people. Few knew that there was anything particular about that lady. So I don't know, that added some charm to her for me. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's one part part in here, I don't think there's any reason to read it, but he compares her response to praise, or no, to someone advising that she changed something in her novel. Mm-hmm. And she kind of responds was just like, well, you know, if I were to do this, it would be out of my realm. And I'm just a little, I'm a humble, humble country girl. And I just need to write what I know. Right. And then he compares that to Charlotte Bronte's response to someone telling her to change something. And she was like the storm and drong. I'm a genius. How could you ever tell me to change anything? Mm-hmm. Ah, hear me roar. And so he just wanted to compare actual letters for you, showing the difference between Jane Austen's humility and Charlotte Bronte's storm and drong. Mm-hmm. And we can tell you which one produced the better novels. Yeah, well, we will come yeah. whatever that month is. I've already read that. So 
As a very little girl, I was always creeping up to Aunt Jane and stabbing her. (laughs) I was always creeping up to Aunt Jane and following her whenever I could in the house and out of it. I might not have remembered this, but for the recollection of my mother's telling me privately that I must not be troublesome to my aunt. Her first charm to children was great sweetness of manner. She seemed to love you and you loved her in return. This, as well as I can now recollect, was that I felt was that was what I felt in my early days before I was old enough to be amused by her cleverness. But soon came the delight of her playful talk. She could make everything amusing to a child. Then, as I got older, when cousins came to share the entertainment, she would tell us most delightful stories, chiefly of fairyland, and her fairies had all characters of their own. The tale was invented, I am sure, at the moment, and was continued for two or three days, if occasion served. Yeah, and then she just he just has more and more of these memories that he would that he got from his cousins who just had these fond memories of Aunt Jane and the way that she would tell them stories and play with them and how even at one point they say they never thought of her as overly clever, but she was sweet. Just happy Aunt Jane. Which as we've discussed before, in case people, this is their people's first Austin episode with us, modern scholars tend to sneer at this biography as they think that it's just hagiography and that because these people were so close to her and they tended to like her, that it must be false. Yeah. Like I've said, you have to admit and acknowledge the fact that this has some blind spots to it. Sure. It's not a complete and accurate picture of who Jane Austen was. She could be a very cutting woman, just judging from yeah. her letters, for example. But isn't it an endearing picture? Yeah. Um, nobody wrote with these fond memories of Mary Shelley, for example. <laughs> there's, there's an example, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have her cousins and nephews writing these fond reminiscences of her. So there is a sort of life that Jane Austen must have lived to have earned this sort of respect and love. Yeah, like we said before, if, if I died and then you said, well, you can't ask Jake and Brandon because they liked him so and they knew him really well. Instead, we should wait 200 years and have some scholars conjecture about him. That doesn't make nearly as much sense as saying, well, okay, Jake and Nathan or Jake and Brandon may have had some blind spots because they liked him, but... Um, they also knew him. They also knew him. <laughs> as far as <laughs> sources go, they're about as good as we can get. So I think you, 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 you do, I think, take... This guy with a little bit of a grain of salt, but also I don't think there's any particular reason to doubt the fond memories. Yeah. Just combine them with the fact that she was a three-dimensional sinful human being who could be cutting, could be all kinds of things, I'm sure. But we know that she was a conservative, quiet girl. Mm -hmm. Last context we did, I read that prayer that she wrote. Yeah, she wrote a fantastic little prayer. Her father was a rector. She loved her father. There's no real reason other than, I mean, we have letters that were burned from certain parts of her life, but families were very careful. If you read Pride and Prejudice, you understand that families and the reputation of the families was extremely important. Mm -hmm. So the slightest bit of scandal would just, would be quietly pushed aside. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, I assume, in a month or so when we, uh, I think we're doing Mr. Dodgson next, aren't we? Um, Yeah. And he's got some missing correspondence that, uh, or some missing diary entries that people like to conjecture about. Yeah, and so... We have her letters and you can get a sense of her humility in mm-hmm. the way that she would respond to things. So like the Prince Regent, a famous story we've told before, loved her novels, that he loved Sense and Sensibility and he loved Pride and Prejudice. So much that when he heard that she was in London, he asked that he would come and speak to his librarian, Mr. Clark. And so she did go and she spoke to him and the librarian then told her that the Prince Regent would be very honored if she would inscribe the next book to him, if the inscription would be to the Prince Regent. Yeah. Dedicate. Yeah, dedicate it. And so she went back and then she wrote this letter back to him saying, I want to make sure I understand you. I'm not required, but am being asked. And he writes back and says, yes, by no means are you required, but the Prince Regent would be honored if you would do it. And so she did. And then there's this back and forth between her and Mr. Clark about him saying, well, maybe you would consider writing about a clergyman 
in one of your novels. And then she would say, you know, that's really, they're so, that's where she mentions classical education. Mm. She says, they've had this classical education where they know Latin and Greek and philosophy and all these things that like humble, I don't know. I don't know these things and I can't write about these things. And so that's out of my field. As much as I am honored for you to make the suggestion to me, I think I'll stick to what I know, which is in my station. And then he says, then he writes back again to her saying, well, maybe you'll write about a Lord and a lady and like the stuff that surrounds their marriage. Like it almost sounds like a Tolstoy novel. And then she writes back again and says, yeah, it's again, I thank you for your consideration, but I'm going to stick to what I know. Dear dude, I don't think you really get it. (laughs) And so, but it's very charming. And then that's where you get his excerpt from Bronte. Whenever I do write another book, I think I will have nothing of what you call melodrama. I think so, but I am not sure. And then she just goes on and on about her German drong. But if you do happen to read this memoir, there is a fun little section where they, he has this paper that he found amongst her stuff, a plan of a novel according to hints from various quarters, hmm. which reminds me of Mozart has a famous song that I'm trying to remember the story. I think Mozart wrote it because people kept asking him to write popular songs. So he's just like, fine, I'll just give it to him. And it's like all what the people who were refined and in the know would laugh at. But he did it just to kind of be funny. So it was his joke at people's expense. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of her joke at people's expense. It's long, but it's funny. So people should go and read it. Yeah. You want to give our, give our listeners a taster? Yeah. So a uh, heroine to be the daughter of a clergyman who after, so this is right in the vein of what Mr. Clark was suggesting, suggesting who after having lived much in the world had retired from it and settled on a curacy with a very small fortune of his own. The most excellent man that can be imagined, perfect in character, temper and manner without the smallest drawback or peculiarity to prevent his being the most delightful companion to his daughter from one year's end to the other. Heroine, faultless in character, beautiful in person, and possessing every possible accomplishment. Um, Book to open with father and daughter conversing in long speeches, elegant language, and a tone of high serious sentiment. (laughs) Okay, so then various things are going to happen, and then they're going to have to move away. At last, hunted hunted out of civilized society, denied the poor shelter of the humblest cottage, they are compelled to retreat into Kamskacha where the poor father, quite worn down, finding his inn approaching, throws himself on the ground, and after four or five hours of a tender advice, admonishment to his miserable child, expires in a fine burst of literary enthusiasm, intermingled with invectives against the holders of tithes. <laughs> so it's just, yeah. It's she funny. was a sarcastic lady, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she was sarcastic. So <laughs> she knew what she was about, and she also knew how she could vent that frustration at times. <laughs> so yeah, so there we go. That's... Jane Austen. I guess more of a book report on a memoir of Jane Austen. (laughs) Hey, this is your fourth time at Batman. Looking today was written by what's that guy's name? Uh, Austin Lay. By Mr. Austin Lay, Jane Austen's nephew. It's a fun read and reported upon by Brandon Chastine. It's 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 easy to read. It's fun and it's short. If you like Jane Austen, it's at least worth a quick perusal. Yeah. Thanks for listening, folks. 